This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hey, it's Jen. Just a heads up before we start the show, this conversation may not be suited for young listeners. We'll be talking about sex and consent today. That also includes topics such as sexual assault depicted on screen. If you need help with something that's happened to you, you can call the National Sexual Assault Hotline. You'll be connected to a trained staff member at a sexual assault service provider in your area. Call 800-656-HOPE. That's 800-656-4673. We also understand if you'd like to skip this conversation, you can find the rest of our Ask A series at the1a.org. As always, thanks for listening and enjoy the show. When you look up the word intimate in the dictionary, a few definitions come up. Words in those definitions include warmth, private, sex, personal, familiarity. Intimacy can start with the brushing of fingertips, delicately grazing your hand on someone's cheek, and end with far more. Some of you had your own experiences with this work. Hi, I'm calling because I used to be an actress, and I've done some sex scenes on TV. And in one in particular, I went into the audition not knowing it was a sex scene and had to show up in a bikini, and the producer hit on me and was very creepy. And when I asked him what the scene was, he said, oh, don't worry, you'd be able to handle it. And so I left and called my manager and agent and told them what happened. And they said, oh, I'm so sorry. And then 15 minutes later, I got a call saying I booked the job and they thought I should do it. And I said, oh, well, what is it? What's the scene? And they said, it's a topless sex scene. So I stupidly did the scene and had a very horrible experience. Thanks for sharing that message. Our Ask A series returns this time to ask, how do intimate scenes from a kiss to all kinds of sex come together on screen? 1A's Ask A series brings experts on the show to answer your questions about their work. We've hosted panels of tattoo artists, political speech writers, drag kings, foreign correspondents, and more. Today, we pose your questions to intimacy coordinators. What does it take to do this work? What effect has it had on workspaces so far? We get into all that after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. On the TED Radio Hour... In the middle school cafeteria, Tai Tashiro always sat with his equally nerdy buddies. The socially awkward kids who were the furthest thing from cool. And he often wondered, Why am I so socially awkward and what am I going to do about that? Now Tai is a psychologist and expert on awkwardness. And he has some answers. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. For the seventh year on the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity go way beyond the day's headlines. Because we know what's part of every person is part of every story. We're bringing that perspective with new episodes every week. Listen on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. 
Let's bring in our guests. Ida O'Brien is an intimacy practitioner for film, television, and live performance. She's the author of Intimacy Onset Guidelines and founder of Intimacy Onset. It provides services to the entertainment industry when dealing with intimacy scenes, and she joins us from the UK. Ida, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure to be here, Jen. Also with us is Zuri Pryor-Graves, an intimacy coordinator, onset therapist, and sex therapist based in Atlanta. Zuri, it's great to have you. Thanks for having me. And also with us, Jessica Steinrock from Chicago. She's an intimacy coordinator and CEO of Intimacy Directors and Coordinators. That's a SAG-AFTRA accredited training organization for intimacy coordinators. Jessica, welcome to the program. Hello, hello. It's good to be here. And we want to hear from you, too. What do you want to know about how sex scenes come together on screen and stage? Email us at 1A at WAMU.org. Ida, let's start with this question we got from Lori in Okemos, Michigan. Lori asks, what educational background must someone have before they can hang out a shingle and say they're an intimacy coordinator? It's really lovely you asked that question in light of this beautiful panel, because we've all come from different walks of life into and different areas of this industry into being an intimacy coordinator. So um, in a way, I'd say the educational background is, 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 you know, it can be like myself. I've come from being a dancer, an actor, movement teacher and a movement director. And I bring all of that skill to the intimacy practitioner. Um, somebody could be... Um, um, you know, a um, from the costume department, somebody could be experienced in production. So there's all different walks of life that someone can be inspired to come and then bring themselves to the role of the intimacy coordinator. What's important is then that sense of education that then whoever is desires to do it, that they seek out a training yeah, and they journey through that training. And of course, the training isn't just what you're taught, but then under mentorship, gaining experience through to full accreditation. That's what's really important, because at the moment, there isn't um, legislation that someone has to be qualified. And in that place, especially um, as the industry has listened and taken note and, and is asking for intimacy practitioners, then literally anybody can just step out up to a production and say, I can be your intimacy practitioner. And in that place, really um, questionable practice happens. And that's what we need to safeguard against. I say to all producers, you know, if someone's coming to you saying that they're an intimacy practitioner, check out their training, check out, you know, if they're not fully qualified, who they're under mentorship with. And so that all of us can keep um, this role to be um, being working at the top of its game and being respected in the industry. Now, SAG-AFTRA has a registry of who they consider qualified intimacy coordinators. And all three of you are certified intimacy coordinators under SAG. Jessica, what does it take to be on that list? Yeah, SAG-AFTRA has done a really phenomenal job of working with the pool of intimacy coordinators who are in the field to make sure that they're building qualifications that match what uh, the working recommendations are. So to be on that list, you have to have a certain number of hours on set, certain number of experience, but you also have to demonstrate training in a number of different areas. What I particularly love about the SAG-AFTRA registry is that um, you can demonstrate training a number of ways. Part of that could be going through an accredited organization to seek certification, but you can also go a different route if you have training in things like modesty garments, barrier, anti-racism work, inclusivity and access and allyship. Um, if you demonstrate your qualifications in that way, you can also enter that registry, really kind of leveling the playing field to make sure that all qualified intimacy professionals have an opportunity to enter into that list. Azuri, you have a background in therapy and clinical work. How does that inform your approach to working in this field? Um, I think that 
Well, we all have to go through a level of um, mental health first aid, um, and we do try to center a lot of the training around um, what's happening for an actor or performer um, off the off the set, off stage, uh, so that we can better support them. I think that for me, that just gives me a jump start um, in that in that regard. Uh, because I am um, a therapist and also I'm a sex therapist. So that came in with just, I think I have the ability to maybe recognize and address certain things that um, folks who are not particularly trained in my field may um, may not be able to see. Uh, and as a result, I really try to center the work that I do around projects that could potentially, that, that go beyond um, choreography a lot of the times uh, and focus more on the mental health of things, um, domestic assault, violence, uh, sexual violence, and things of that nature, so that I can um, not only be an, an intimacy coordinator, but also help from the the trauma lens. So, so does that require you having a conversation with the actors involved in the scene ahead of time to try to understand their mindset and and what they may be struggling with as they go into a scene? I mean, what what does that work look like practically? Um, I think practically we all approach scenes with, with one of the requirements for this work is that we make sure that these conversations are happening ahead of time. And I think that sometimes it's it's very easy to pick up on what an actor may be experiencing um, behind their eyes and behind closed doors. And sometimes an actor will just tell you uh, that this scene may bring up certain things. Um, I think that the way that uh, being a mental, coming from the mental health world um, helps inform the way that I approach these things is I think I'm able to read between the lines a little bit differently. Um, and that's not always true. We have an ama- we have amazing intimacy coordinators who just have amazing intuition. Um, but in terms of my skill set and being able to respond um, quickly and appropriately and when someone has been triggered or is having a panic attack or um, is having a traumatic experience or cater the choreography and work alongside with the director and the creative team to make little tweaks. And, and again, this is these are things that we all do. Um, to make little tweaks in, like if someone is, just as an example, choking um, or something that could be potentially triggering, we can tell those stories and, and come up with creative ways to to get the creative teams what they want while also keeping keeping the actor safe. Ida, mm-hmm. you developed a set of best practice, practices called intimacy on set guidelines. What did you have in mind when you created them? So, yeah, so the way that work or the my, de- my development of the work was very organic. I was exploring a devised piece of work and looking at the dynamic of the perpetration of, and the victim, the flip side of that coin. And in that intention, I was thinking... How do I put in place best practice in a rehearsal process in order to hold my actors when they come and explore this? Um, so I started that R&D in April of 2014. And then one of my colleagues, Meredith Dufton, at the head of movement at Mountview, said, please come and teach what you're developing. I have to note intimate content. There's no process to do it well. And you're creating that process. And then as I was teaching the work, I, um, I also co-worked with another colleague, Vanessa Ewan, who, um, along with her colleague, Debbie Green, had written a book, Act and Movement. And she had already had the inspiration of um, um, watching a fight rehearsal and saying that's the kind of process that we need for intimate content. And she wrote a chapter, but in her chapter, she wrote, in the absence of industry guidelines that you as the 
artists need to have a commitment to, to um, asking for best practice. And I thought, I can change that. Mm. So I started speaking to Equity in February 2017, and I shared the work with a group of agents in um, June of 2017. So in a way, that was the first time I pulled together the process that I was sharing, which became the Intimacy Onset Guidelines. <clears throat> and then particularly um, in October of 2017, with the Weinstein allegations and the subsequent Time's Up and Me Too movement, I was ready to share the process of the Intimacy Onset Guidelines. So I, I always feel incredibly blessed that um, it was such an organic process for me with just that intention of working with best practice that resulted in the Intimacy Onset Guidelines. Let's take a quick pause here and head to break. We'll be back with more of your questions for our experts in just a moment. Numbers that explain the economy. We love them at the Indicator from Planet Money. And on Fridays, we discuss indicators in the news, like job numbers, spending, the cost of food, sometimes all three. So my indicator is about why you might need to bring home more bacon to afford your eggs. I'll be here all week. Wrap up your week and listen to the Indicator podcast from NPR. What does it sound like to record an album inside a jail? On the documentary podcast, Track Change, you'll hear four men make music inside Richmond City Jail and hear how they're trying to break free from a cycle of addiction and incarceration. Been so long since I've been free. Listen to Track Change from Narratively and VPM, part of the NPR Network. From the campaigns to the conventions, from now through Election Day and beyond, the NPR Politics Podcast has you covered. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump square off again, we bring you the latest news from the trail and dive deep into each candidate's goals for a second term. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day, we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. Let's get back to the conversation with this message we got from a member of our text club. There are clearly boundaries being identified and enforced. What informs intimacy coordinators' concept of appropriate boundaries? Jessica? Yeah, I love having a conversation right away with the actors to as well as the director, to get a sense of what's the story of the work. Something that Zuri was saying earlier is this idea that we can tell the story of something in a number of different ways. So as long as we're all agreeing on what story we're telling, we can always find ways to work within an actor's boundary. A boundary can be for any reason, uh, but it helps us understand what physical motions and what uh, stories they want to tell and are willing to do with their bodies or have done to them. So whether that's not wanting to have their wrist touched or their arm grabbed or their face licked or they don't like tickling, whatever those situations are, we can always work within those boundaries to tell the story. But we want to make sure that first and foremost, we're all agreeing on what the same story is so that we can tell the story within the boundaries of the actors. We also got this text. Who on set is in charge of choreographing intimate scenes? Ida, how involved are you in the choreography? Um, so... 
that is what we offer as part of the process of the intimacy onset guidelines. But that's the, the role is absolutely always adapting to what each performer requires and needs. So sometimes we're absolutely there, invariably I'll be there with the actor director um, interrogating the scene, listening, both body listening to what they say, but how they say it, where the impulse is going. And then once the shape of the scene is known, then, then up, we'll stand up, agree touch and choreograph really clearly. So there'll be Absolutely, um, and choreographing and bringing my body skills, anatomy skills, and then sense of rhythm and, and, and physical dance. But sometimes you've got two actors who know each other really well, who are really embodied. I'll absolutely still be there engaging with the listening to the actor-director process, but they might just want to get up and have a play and explore it. But I will still be there then to help to go to anchor it, to you know, to, to help in the repetition of it, share perhaps what the choreography is with the DOP so that a shot list can be taken on. Um, so, so it depends. So we can be really integral or just standing and, and holding space, you know, making sure that everybody's really comfortable. Um, but what's glorious now is that understanding that this is a body dance and this is therefore just like a stunt or, um, you know, beautiful um, choreographed, you know, tango, that it is something that needs to be rehearsed, um, that both so allows both actors to give their consent in touch in whatever simulated sexual content and in nudity. And then everybody, once they know that, can then perform to the top of their game with, with freedom, knowing that consent is completely inherent. I'm curious to hear from you, Ida, because as, as you earlier described, um, the planning and choreography and, and thoughts about safety around stunts or, or fight scenes, but this development of an intimacy coordinator on set who, te- who treats these scenes in the same way, this is a new, fairly new development in Hollywood. Do you think there is a gender dynamic at play that delayed the thinking around safety within these scenes? Um, that's, um, that's a very interesting one. Um, in my, you know, consideration of why it's taken so long for the role of the intimacy practitioner to, to come about at all in the first place and then, you know, to be really embraced is that um, there was a couple of things that in a way take lift gender off it, mm. or, although historically it has sort of seemed to be more sort of the, the, the male producer or male director with the woman. But I really would like to lift that because for me it's really important. This work is for everybody. And the role of the intimacy practitioner, the process of the intimacy guidelines allows everybody to be listened to, heard, to work with respect and for everybody to work to the top of the game within the role that they're in, which is glorious. Um, so, but, um, so what was happening was, I feel, two things. One, people were embarrassed to talk about intimate content across the board. And in the absence of a professional structure that was there to invite the creative conversation and, you know, to put in place agreement and consent, it was just avoided. And in that place of, avoid, of, of avoiding and feeling embarrassed, that's where a lot of bad practice happened. And then the other aspect that I considered was that um, it's really clear if someone wants you to do a tango, of course, people aren't expected to know how to do that. Of course, you need a choreographer to teach you. If someone wants you to, put you to pretend to punch someone across the face, you don't know necessarily the techniques needed for distance, eye contact, how you throw the punch, how you pretend to do the nap. Of course, you need a practitioner to teach those skills and then choreograph. But people had the idea of, well, we're all sexual beings, we all have sex, so we don't need a practitioner to to, um, bring that structure. And of course, in that 
um, thought in those thoughts what got overlooked that um, that of course when someone's personal and private intimate body is at play when someone's just said right just you go there just act sexy let you know take clothes off you know when so um, when when someone's touched in a way that's not suitable for them when they're coerced into taking clothes off in a way that's not suitable when they're asked to perform simulated sexual content or any content that oversteps their boundaries there is an injury and that injury is emotional psychological and that bit while historically actors said oh they're always awkward and all the rest of it but that awkwardness or feeling harassed to feeling abused is actually an injury but because it wasn't really acknowledged as something that can be mitigated against it was it was just washed over until the brave women coming forward for the Weinstein allegations and finally that tipping point um, of being listened to and heard and then being able to be, um, you know, for that to be something that could be um, brought to a court. And, you know, that's 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 the difference. Mm. Um, and so with all of that coming together, you know, sort of acknowledging the injury of the emotional, psychological, you know, when someone's being coerced into doing a scene that's not good. And then lifting the lid and going, we need to talk about, we're providing a process to talk about it openly, respecting everybody, putting in place agreement and consent, acknowledging it as a body dance. And all of that goes to mean that we can work openly, freely, joyously, creatively, professionally, making the best work and really serving the art. We got this question. Is there ever any room for improvisation? Do directors ever encourage the actors to act spontaneously or to improvise their scenes? Jessica? <laughs> yeah, this is a good one for me because my background is actually in improv and stand-up comedy. So improvising is near and dear to my heart. And I think there's kind of, again, a misconception that we can't improvise, that we have to, you know, choreograph everything. You know, your right hand goes here, breathe in twice. Uh, and, and we we have a range of choreography that we can play. What is important, again, I think we've said this over and over and over again, is that we have consent. And consent does require information. That said, what we can do is build kind of these broad containers where we say, okay, here's the area we can play in and we consent to anything in this area. We're not going to be sure what the order is. We're not going to be sure, but we do know you're going to move from the wall to across the room to the couch. Um, but within that, we've got a lot more opportunities to play with breath and hands. I think Ida was saying something about uh, when you're working with really embodied actors, there is a little bit more space for improvisation. What we don't want is surprise, uh, which is a big difference and a distinction I like to make. We don't want someone to be surprised in the middle of an intimate, vulnerable moment because that is an opportunity where we did not actually get consent. We want people to be inspired. We want people to be creative, but we do not want surprises on the day. And so that's what we work to avoid. We got this question from Thea who emails, who decides if the production team hires an intimacy coach? Does an actor have to request it? Zuri, how does it happen? Unfortunately, right now, um, it, it's not a requirement. So uh, we are hopefully moving to a place uh, and working with um, SAG-AFTRA to hopefully see something uh, shake in that department. But until then, um, it comes a lot of different ways. Uh, sometimes it is by actor request. Uh, and for HBO, it is um, standard practice. So Alicia Rodas um, made it. She's, she's the maybe Jessica can, can weigh in, I don't want to mistake her title, but every HBO production that has intimacy is required to have an intimacy coordinator. 
Um, and that's thanks to Alicia Rodas. And so, but not every network is that. Um, but as we move into that direction, I think the hope is that it can start from the network down and making it uh, an industry requirement there. But uh, a lot of times when I'm pulled into spaces and places in Atlanta, uh, it is by actor request. And that is because um, a lot of times we're, we're still in the education phase of this and making sure that productions understand what our role is and how we can contribute to production. And not everybody always knows that to, to ask for us. Let's head to a quick break, but still to come, how does intimacy work change when filming a scene about lack of consent or any kind of sexual violence? Stay with us. Lots more still ahead. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. Let's get back to the discussion with this message we got from Sam, who emails, Does this practice exist at drama schools now? Are actors today being introduced to this process before they have their first professional experiences? And Gretchen also emails, My teenage daughter is very active in theater and musical theater, and they use three zones, green, yellow, and red, for onstage intimacy. I was active in theater up through college and after. We did not have that language or practice. What changed to make this standard practice? Jessica, where do things stand in the world of stage performance? Yeah, um, we're seeing the same progress that's happening in TV and film on stage, which is really exciting. We're also seeing this in dance, opera, improv. Uh, So these conversations are happening on a a global scale in all of the entertainment practices. Uh, And I am also pleased to say that um, most intimacy training, or sorry, most actor training institutions are embracing um, intimacy work. So we're seeing that as part of undergraduate education, graduate education, and the, the inclusion of consent-based practices, not just with intimate scenes, but also in how we operate in every scene. So we're seeing this evolve uh, stage combat practices as well as directorial practices. Uh, I know that Ida O'Brien has also done a significant amount with universities. So Ida, if you have anything to add, uh, I would love your input. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's been incredible. Um, the fundamental is uh, such a shift. When I was first sharing the work with students back in 2014 or 15, they were saying, really, can we really pause and say, can we have a, a conversation with the director? Because we're just taught to just say yes. And now the shift is to consent-based training and leading to consent-aware students, leading to consent-aware professionals. Um, which is really exciting and embedding the development of the the teaching and the intimacy guidelines throughout, say, a three-year BA um, course. It's not just about come and have one workshop and leave. Um, The awareness of very first day, freshers' day, you know, so much bad practice can possibly happen even on that very first day. So bringing in consent awareness, you know, sort of when the very first day someone's at university or at drama school and then journeying through. So the idea of the the, the choreography and the structure of consent, then bringing it into the scenes with text, because it's actually quite um, complex to um, be able to say the words, um, have the text, but also be really conscious, having that awareness of your body connection to then have the choreography along with the lines incorporating the the, the emotional journey um so, so and then of course fundamentally at a drama school 
the your teach your learning um, for theatre, and then of course then it, then you bring it into normally in the second year to intimacy for for screen. So then bring it into that, and then of course finally into your third year for all of your performances that are um, industry leading and then finally to professional preparation. So it's really joyous, the shift in, the, um, in, our, in our teaching institutions. We got a lot of questions about hygiene. Members of the 1A Text Club asked, are actors advised to brush their teeth or use mouthwash prior to filming? And another one asked, how do you handle actors who have bad hygiene habits? Jessica, is this, is this something that's part of your work? You know, honestly, I will say most people are very understanding as far as like they know they brush their teeth mostly for their own safety. Like they're like, I got to have the cleanest breath. Um, But that is something, you know, we all carry breath mints, which is kind of a fun thing to actually hand out. You know, also the cast and crew ends up uh, all taking breath mints. Um, But I always use the phrase that we need hygiene appropriate to the work that we're doing. So uh, if we're talking about mouths kissing mouths, that means that our mouths need to be clean and hygienic in order for that work to be safe and appropriate in a workspace. Let's go back to our voicemail box. We got this from Jen in Wisconsin. On a darker note, I think that the best sex scene I've seen on a TV show recently is Hannah's experience on the morning show. As someone who's experienced sexual assault with someone who may have thought it was consensual from the outside, I thought they did an excellent job of portraying how it feels for the person who goes through it. Jen, thanks for sharing that with us. Plenty of films and television shows we see explore themes of sexual assault, and that includes the limited series I May Destroy You. The HBO show won the British Academy of Film and Television Arts its BAFTA Award for Best Limited Series in 2021. And the lead actress, Michaela Cole, won the BAFTA for Lead Actress. And in her speech, Ida, she thanked you. I want to dedicate this award to the director of intimacy, Rita O'Brien, Thank you for your existence in our industry, for making the space safe, for creating physical, emotional and professional boundaries so that we can make work about exploitation, loss of respect, about abuse of power without being exploited or abused in the process. I know what it's like to shoot without an intimacy director, the messy, embarrassing feeling for the crew, the internal devastation for the actor. Your direction was essential to my show. And I believe essential for every production company that wants to make work exploring themes of consent. Ida, what were your priorities as you approached scenes that dealt with sexual assault and consent? So first of all, you want to be really clear again in the actor director, you know, you know, interrogation of the script, having really clear you know, identifying really clearly the beats of the scene, you know, why is it there, really identifying the power play of the two characters. So you're bringing that clarity. But then when we step up to choreograph that scene, I throw all the emotion out and we just go, right, this is just bare bones. And even more, just absolute, just um, um, clarity of moves. And then particularly if there's moves where someone is being held or the person who's being the aggressor, making sure that those techniques are put in place, so, for example, if someone's hand is being held, it is the person who is holding that just forms the frame, the person who is being held that will be the one that controls the energy. And that takes a little bit more of body memory repeating it because of that reverse energy so that when the cameras rolls, so, so what we want is the actor to be so comf- confident and comfortable in the physical frame that you've offered so that then camera rolls and then they can fill it with the victim and the perpetrator. Um, and then... 
the book ending. So again, our work is that preparation into the day on set. But then we always invite the actor like a high five, invariably a hug. But then the techniques to put in place to honour themselves and to now let go, not just physically, emotionally and psychologically. So different techniques um, um, work for different people, but really making sure that we facilitate that. So the actor personally can really step into this day of work give off their all, really tell a good storytelling and then step away so that they go back home in a really good way, knowing they've honoured the story, honoured the production, told a really good story, but everybody has worked really professionally. We got this from a member of the 1A Text Club. How do you ensure that scenes of rape or ones that ask actors to be more vulnerable and revealing do not cause any trauma or stress to the actors? Jessica, specifically, how do you approach that in your work? Yeah, really, it is about conversation and clear communication and intense preparation for many, many weeks ahead of time. Uh, That is something that I think intimacy coordination as a practice has really changed in our industry, is it's given us more time to do prep work. Historically, uh, a lot of this stuff was really decided on the day of filming. Um, Sometimes actors didn't know what kind of modesty garments or barriers they were going to be asked to wear. And with that time pressure, it really makes it very difficult to achieve consent without coercion. And now, pile on top of that a scene that involves a really intense emotional experience, a really intense story. Uh, putting that kind of pressure on the day is far too much. So we take a lot of time in the beginning to really, as you know, Ida was saying, suss out what's the story and what are the moves, the specific moves that we are going to use to tell that story. Um, and then we put those moves in our bodies before ever adding in that layer of emotional acting. It's kind of, again, similar to a sword fight, if you're really thinking about it. Uh, those famous fight scenes, those famous sword scenes, they first got to learn the moves. They first got to learn the choreography to make it look spontaneous and violent and dangerous. Um, but they do that part without adding the acting so that when they add that layer of acting, they're able to juggle the choreography of the story, uh, the acting, the lines, staying inside the camera frame um, and making sure that they're doing their best work um, and then wiping that off at the end of the day so they don't hold that story with them in their day-to-day lives. An intimacy coordinator or intimacy director as a title is, as we said, it's a, it's a newer position. In, in this world. Ida, how much of a learning curve is there for the other members of the production team to, to better understand what you're there to do and what you're not there to do? Um, that's right. And, and while the guidelines are very simple and it seems that it just is affecting the actors and the director, actually the role um, just gives a little bit of a shift to across a whole production. So invariably what I do on a, a, you know, as a head of department, I'm there at the production meeting and I share a little of a little 10 minute presentation that I share because, for example, the... Um, Standby art director, if we're working with, um, you know, with with different props, the sort of we 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 dovetail with them. If we're working outside in the cold, I'm going to be co-working with the onset medic to make sure that you know temperatures taken, you know, that the the actress kept, um, you know, sort of at the right degree of of not getting too cold, and that that's dovetailing there. If there's a shower or anything with with um, water, the um, SFX person is the person that's involved with the with preparing the water, and we're dovetailing there, finding out what kind of temperature and everything. So so the role absolutely, you know, has an effect on nearly everybody across the whole production. And then also as intimacy practitioners, you know, so you talked about challenging intimate content. We are there to support not just the actors and directors, but we're the producer's ally. 
and we're taking care of a whole production. So, for example, if there is a challenging intimate scene um, or even something beautiful, I was working on a scene where there was a birth I, and, I, you know, just thinking it's a beautiful scene. But then when I was checking in with the modesty garments and the um, lady in the costume was going, oh, I'm dreading that day. And I was going, oh, why? And of course, you know, not everybody's birth has been beautiful and lovely. So for them, it was activating. So it's a reminder. And of course, um, you know, when we work with challenging intimate content, working with the producers, making sure that we flag at least a week beforehand that that content's going to be happening, inviting anybody from the cast or crew to come forward if they need support, in confidence, you know, with respect, and then being given um, counselling support if needed. And that's where obviously Zuri has that skill herself. But for me as the intimacy practitioner, in my risk assessment, I will identify if there if there is a risk and I co-work with an artist wellbeing practitioner and make sure that that practitioner is also part of my team, part of, um, you know, working on a production mm-hmm. and all of those practitioners go to help supporting a whole production. It's it's so layered and it's much more layered than I, I knew before our conversation. We've just got about 30 seconds left here. I Just briefly in a sentence or two, I'd love to hear from each of you what you want people to understand about your role in this industry. Zuri? I think the biggest thing for me is I want productions and I want people to understand that we're collaborators and and we want this art just as much as everyone else. And I think that people see us a lot of times as um, coming in and 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 we want to we want to limit creative freedom. And really, what we want to do is create a container where it can be done freely and fully, and and we can produce. Um, the best content that we can. Uh, So I think that that is one of the biggest misconceptions about us. Jessica, briefly. Yeah, similarly, that um, this work is here to stay and that you have a right to your body and consent. Ida, I'll give you the last word. And that we are here to elevate our beautiful human storytellings of the most beautiful human connections of our loving. And we're here to let them fly and everybody to work with joy. That's Ida O'Brien. She's an intimacy practitioner for film, television, and live performance. She's the author of the Intimacy on Set Guidelines and founder of Intimacy on Set. It provides services to the entertainment industry when dealing with intimacy scenes. Also with us, Suri Pryor-Graves, an intimacy coordinator, on-set therapist, and sex therapist based in Atlanta, and Jessica Steinrock, an intimacy coordinator and CEO of Intimacy Directors and Coordinators. That's a SAG-AFTRA-accredited training organization for intimacy coordinators. Jessica, Zuri, it was a pleasure. Thanks. Today's producer was Jorgelina Manorea. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity don't begin or end with the news cycle. That's because we know race and identity impact every person and influence every story. We're getting into all of it with new voices each week on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. With more and more information coming at you all day, every day, it can be hard to know where to focus. The new Consider This newsletter from NPR can be that focus. Every weekday afternoon, we take one of the day's biggest stories and break it down in a simple, skimmable format so you can get a better grasp of one important topic and what it means for you in a couple of minutes. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. 
It's Been a Minute is a culture show you don't want to miss. Every week, we help you see the culture angle behind the headlines, the forces behind the trends, and the thinkers behind the next big thing. Tune in for the sharp cultural analysis and captivating interviews. Listen now to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. NPR.